Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Asset Allocator podcast. Uh, my name is Damien Fantato. I'm the uh, Deputy Editor of FT Advisor. Uh, as you might have guessed, the more cute uh, of you uh, will have guessed, I'm a new voice on this podcast. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my colleague uh, David Baxter is unwell uh, this week. Uh, we wish him a speedy recovery. Um, but I have been uh, drafted in to uh, have a chat with uh, my colleague David Thorpe, an uh, investment editor on um, FT Advisor, who uh, writes Asset Allocator. As you know, I am responsible for editing it. So, uh, David, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Damien, and thanks for stepping in to help um, put this podcast together today. Because, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly been been a lot happening in the in the fund universe. Cool. So, one of the things that you've been writing about recently has been the the levels of cash in in, in cautious and, and balanced portfolios, and you've been looking into uh, some of the most popular money market funds. Um, so, what is it that you've been um, that you've seen there that you think is interesting? Sure. Well, actually, it's uh, maybe counterintuitively, but in the in those cautious portfolios that we monitor, uh, cash levels have actually been falling this year. Um, so, relative to say last September, so two quarters back, um, the average cautious portfolio had ten point four percent of its assets in, in cash. As of this week or as of March, uh, the average is, is nine point five percent so it's come it's come down a little bit which um whether that reflects uh slightly more optimism uh from allocators at the start of this year or whether that represents something else is is something i'd I'd love to hear from from listeners um as ever there are outliers with all of this data for example quilter's wealth select range has 18 percent uh, in in cash in in the cautious of its of its portfolios, uh, well, both Bruin Dolphin and New Asset Management have fifteen uh, percent allocations there, which is quite chunky. At the other end of that distribution is is Aberdeen uh, with less than one percent in in cash. And then I think the the second part of your your question was around uh, money market funds. So where is that? That cash held. Well, the most popular money market fund, and it actually it has been for for quite some time, really, is uh, the Royal London Short Term Money Market Fund, which five of the uh, DFMs that we monitor uh, own that fund, and demand for it has been pretty constant. One DFM left at the start of 2023, while another bought into it at the end of 2022. So. That demand is is quite stable. The next most widely owned money market fund among those we cover is BlackRock Sterling Liquidity, which is owned by four DFMs, and again had sort of one buyer and one seller since the start of 2022. So I think that part of the market money market funds is 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 an area where people are quite happy to to park and and, and forget and not really have to move. Um, you know, move move between funds. We also had a look at the income portfolios that we monitor just to see what what cash levels are like there. And the highest uh, allocation to cash in there is is IBOS. Uh, someone else can do a joke about um, about Yorkshire people and uh, retaining cash, um, but they have six percent uh, allocated to cash against an average exposure in income portfolios of 3%, which is actually, again, a little bit lower. It was 4% uh, 
um, in September last year. The next most highest allocation in the income portfolios is Schroeder's uh, at 5.8%. And at the other end of the distribution, the lowest level of cash in the income model portfolios we cover is Close Brothers at 1.7% and Wise at 0.5%. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I always part of me does find the, um, the the world of money market funds quite fascinating because they're kind of like current accounts. So you, they're all fundamentally the same thing. So I'm surprised. It surprises me that you see so many people sort of. I just you expect I'd expect you to see more dispersion rather than people gathering in behind one fund. Um, but I guess maybe it's the short term nature of the Royal London Fund which makes it um, more popular at the moment. Yeah, sure. I, I I guess so. I also suspect that because, as you say, they they do fundamentally um, the same job. There's probably a little bit of first mover advantage. If you were one of the mm. first money market funds to get some scale, then everybody's just going to go to you because why why not? Um, and then yeah. the money the money is is relatively st- sticky after after that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, we you mentioned um, income um, income portfolios just then and. One of the other things that you, you've been looking at recently has been income uh, income portfolio. The level of ex- exposure to equity is in, in income portfolios, and this has been something we've looked at several times in, in over the course of the past few few um, months. But you, you've looked at that again recently. Um, tell me what you've been seeing there. Sure. Well, the top line number, I guess, is the average allocation over the course of 2022 fell from 51% in equities to 49, with Invesco. Uh, the most underweight to equities in their in their income portfolio at uh, 28%. So 28% versus an average of, of 49 is obviously a, a chunky underweight. Um, and at the other end of the distribution, AJ Bell um, have uh, 67% in, in equities, which again is a chunky overweight relative to, to 49. But the other thing that we thought we'd, we'd look at within that then was... Um, the exposure to U.S. equities, equity funds within income portfolios, and the reason we thought we'd look at that is, you know, the the cliche is that uh, U.S. equities is a, is a barren hunting ground for those uh, who have income as a priority, and indeed, you know, you can see it. The average allocation to U.S. equity funds within income portfolios is nine percent, which is obviously vastly underweight. Um, equity markets generally. And that hasn't really moved much. It's about half a percent lower today than it was in the final quarter of 2022 and and very much within its its long-term range. And James Barnes and his colleagues on the Avalon Active Model uh, Portfolio range, within their income uh, strategy, they have the largest allocation to US uh, equity funds at 22%. And in in the U.S. market, and the next highest allocation after that is the twenty percent of John Husserby and his team at Lion Trust. And at the other end of the range, uh, neither U Asset Management nor Hawksmore have anything, so they're on zero for U.S. equity funds within their income portfolios. And one of the things that I think makes um, put some context around that is that, as we've mentioned many times, the mo- absolute most popular fund of any kind among the DFMs that we cover is JP Morgan US equity income. So, you know, equity exposure is going down, US equity funds 
a very small part of income portfolios. And yet that fund, which is run by Claire Hart uh, from New York, uh, is owned by 12 of the 42 DSMs that we that we monitor. Somebody who's better at maths can work out that that percentage. Um, but the fund is, I mean, it's 4.2 billion in size. But Hart runs obviously a range of of mandates um, and actually has about $75 billion under her management when you factor in US compliant funds and institutional money. And that means that Claire Hart probably runs more money than any other woman in the world. And the fund has a yield of 2.3%, um, but in absolute return terms or total return terms, has actually had a strong year, losing just over 1% when her sector average loss was 7%. And to show the extent to which that fund has cornered the market, no US income tracker fund is held by any of the allocators that we follow. Obviously, generalist US equity trackers are, but not US income trackers. So that shows the extent to which that fund has really dominated the, the market. Mm. Yes, I put one of the one of the um, contexts in which that fund kind of come, um, came up recently in, in asset allocator was within the context of its quite large exposure to um, financials for obvious reasons. It's an income fund, um, and these you know it's been uh, an interesting period for banks uh, in the U.S. Uh, over the last few weeks. Um, so yeah, tell me, uh, and you, you've been looking into that as well, haven't you? Yes. Well, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think it appeals to the to the geek within me, Damien, to uh, to talk about bank bonds and and AT ones and and all of that stuff. Um, but one of the, I suppose, phenomena of recent years has been uh, that a number of uh, such funds were were launched on the market. It was probably a tough time to launch them, but what we're broadly calling financials capital type funds actually got, got popular in 2022 and into 2023, which indicates that there's a correlation between demand for those funds and higher interest rates. Um, and there are several funds. There's no uh, fund here that, that's cornering the market. You've got Fidelity Global Financial Services. You've got the iShares S&P 500 Financials ETF and the iShares S&P US Banks ETF. And then um, all of those are uh, held by one DFM each, and all of those DFMs bought within the last sort of 15 months since the start of 2022. But the fund that is owned by slightly more than most is Premier Mighton Financial Capital Securities Fund, which is run by uh, Robert James, who uh, used to be an equity banks analyst, actually, and worked with Richard Buxton throughout his career. But he's uh, moved to... Some might say the dark side with a bond fund. Um, but Rob's fund is uh, owned by one of the all allocators on our database. But also, we know that just in the last month or so, um, the multi-manager team at BMO, so that's the team that used to be known as the Potter and Bardess team, but but um, is now run by um, Scott Spencer and Kelly Pryor, as well as Mr. Bardet. Uh, they bought the fund in recent um, weeks. So that fund is is owned by two of the allocators that we that we cover. So again, with those, it'll be interesting to see what demand for those is like, given those recent events with SVB Bank and um, and all of that. But there isn't uh, a standout in that category in terms of one fund hoovering up all of the available 
uh, cash. Obviously, one can access um, U.S. banks by buying generalist U.S. funds as well. So we thought we'd uh, have a look at, at that. But um, do you want to come in before we do that? No, I think that's interesting because I suspect that um, a lot of a lot of EFMs are getting exposure to this sector via more generalist funds, as uh, as, you, as you say, as stuff like US funds. So, so what's going on there? Yeah, sure. So the um, the Dodge and Cox US stock fund, for example, is owned by seven of the DFMs we cover. Uh, so that's quite widely owned and has an exposure of 22.5% to uh, financials of one kind or another. And that 22.5%, to put that into context, is more than double the sector uh, weight of 11%. Mm-hmm. And the aforementioned, uh, to bring it all back together, almost as if we know what we're doing, Damien, um, <laughs> the J.P. Morgan U.S. Equity Income Fund, which, as we mentioned, is run by Claire Hart and owned by 12 DFMs, has an exposure of 21.5% to uh, to U.S. banks. So almost, almost exactly double the exposure. And then at the other end of the spectrum, maybe the more value end of the spectrum in terms of... Uh, in terms of funds, you have Premier Might and U.S. Opportunities, which is um, which is very long established, quite widely held by uh, the DFMs we we cover. It's held by seven five portfolios, and that has an exposure of nineteen point four percent. So you don't have to go to financial capital funds, and it's also worth emphasising financial capital funds invest in bank bonds of one kind or another. Whereas those generalist US funds obviously invest in, in bank equity. And as the shareholders and bondholders of Credit Suisse have been made aware of in recent weeks, bonds and equities and banks do not always perform uh, in line with each other or indeed as they thought they, they might. Mm, yeah. Interesting. I guess the, um, you know, it's in, the, one of the interesting things is that uh, uh, about the Dodge and Cox fund is that it's a it's a fund which has a its primary objective is 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 growth, and it, but nonetheless it has quite a large um, large allocation to financials. Though I think it's if I, if I remember correctly, I think that it also does have a a secondary objective of seeking some level of income. Um, but yes, it's that's a that's a large exposure to um, financials. Mm. It, yeah, it's only. I mean, in the US, obviously, it's, it's not really the same as in the UK because in the in the UK, if you want banks, there there a small number of banks dominate the market, mm. and a small number of banks are listed. And if you go outside of those to the challenger banks or, or whatever, that's a that's a very different universe. Whereas in the US, there are lots of regional banks. Uh, which, although we call them regional, if you put them in the UK, if they put their balance sheet into the UK, they would they would feel very big. So yes. you know, one, one can go one can go across the um, one can go across the market cap spectrum almost, um, to banks in the in the US. Um, although whether the uh, recent performance of SVB and, and one or two others in the US may be causing people to ponder whether they want US regional banks at a time of uh, tightening liquidity in, in global markets and economies. Mm. Yes, interesting. Well, thanks very much, David. Uh, yeah, that's there's certainly plenty of plenty of food for thought and plenty going on at the moment. What with um, SVB and all that, um, and hopefully, uh, in next uh, by the next edition of the podcast, a normal service will be resumed and uh, David Baxter will be back with us. 
And in the, but in the meantime, uh, thank you very much, uh, David, for your time, and thank you very much for listening. And uh, tune in again for the next edition of the uh, Asset Allocator podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.